Mantras for Clarity, Tape One, Side One. I am pure. I am a creator of light, standing in the source of my own truth. I shine on the world. It does not touch me. I am a link in the unbroken chain of existence, a chain without an end or a beginning, a chain that ties all that lives and all that has lived and all that will live. I am the wind. I am that which the wind blows. I am a floating eyeball. This is not a metaphor. I am literally a floating sentient eyeball from beyond the stars. I am the source of my own self-actualization. I am the sole standard by which I am judged. I can control other people's minds and make them do my bidding. I have a hypnotic ray that I shoot out of my iris. The plants which grow do not know in what world they grow into, but still they grow. So as I am, so as are the members of my slave army, as they do my terrible bidding, not knowing toward what goal they toil, as they construct the black pyramid of sorrows that I will use to call forth the dread consumers of worlds for which I am herald. I am pure. I am a creator of light, standing in the source of my own truth. I'm also a floating sentient eyeball with a vast army of hypnotized slaves building obsidian pyramids of the damned in the nuclear wastelands of New Mexico, bringing forth the culling of humanity and the age of the slaughter. I shine on the world. It does not touch me. I am the Post Culture Podcast. <laughs>
My Life in Comedy, excerpts from the memoirs of Winston Egbert. I suppose the comedy bug first bit me when I met Mark Twain. Of course, this was when I was just a wee lad and he was an old man, and I barely knew who he was, but such a presence can't help but leave a stamp on a child. Twain was on one of his speaking tours, and my parents, who adored him, took my siblings and I to see the great man in person. I don't remember much of the content of the talk he gave, but I do remember my father, a normally very dour and serious-minded man, laughing like a delighted child throughout. After the lecture, my parents waited in line to meet this remarkable personage of American letters. I remember my father grasping Twain's hand and shaking it enthusiastically as if Twain had done him some great service. Twain seemed to take a special interest in me and asked me what I had thought of the lecture. I told him, with childish innocence, that what I had been awake for had been wonderful. Twain laughed joyfully at that, telling my father I had the makings of a humorist in me. He then bent down to whisper a bit of wisdom in the ear of my younger self, so only I could hear. You spare me a bit of change, kid? he asked. I'm hurting bad here. My shoes are sold with wood, and it ain't good wood at that. Serious here, I fought a mangy dog for my last meal. I think he gave me rabies, and that was three days ago. Taking pity, I slipped him a nickel I had found on the lecture hall floor between naps, figuring it was as much his as anybody's. Thank you, kid. You're a pal. Here's some advice to carry with you. Remember that humanity is a wretched mob of damned liars and sinners, and there ain't no God who will save you. With that, he patted me on the back and went back to smiling and shaking hands with the assembled crowd. And my career in comedy was ordained. There's a list of trains departing from this station. On track one is the Night Express, with stops in Dark Hollow, Ghost Valley, Blood River. Accommodations are bare bones, as will you be. On track two is the Coastline Sleeper, with stops at the Lord of the Ocean and the fossilized remains of the damned. Please feed your tickets to the Kraken. On track three is the Sunnytime Express. Stops at Funtopia, Cuddleville, and Snuggle Time Station. There will be no survivors. On track four is the night mail delivery. No stops, no tickets taken. Pray to whatever you call a god, you do not receive a delivery from it. On track five is the Lost Special, with stops at the gates of El Dorado, Atlantis, Myrrh, and the abandoned ruins of heaven. On track six is the Final Express, stops at the Blood Pyramids, the Eldritch Empire, 
and the Jaws of Madness. Luxury accommodations for those who choose to have their eyes removed and replaced with crab claws. That is all. And now, a word from our sponsors. Are you tired? Alone? Afraid? Depressed? Sad? Are you hungry? Do you hunger for meat? Do you hunger for human flesh? What kind of monster are you? Are you a nice monster? Are you an ugly monster? Are you ugly? Do they call you ugly? Do they call you names? Do they call you names at school? Do they laugh at you? Do they push you into a corner? Do they call you a freak? Do they call you a monster? Are you afraid? Are you tired? Are you depressed? Are you hungry? Are you going to eat somebody? Are you going to eat a kid? Are you going to eat a ghost? Are you going to eat some meat? Are you going to eat a cow? Are you going to kill a cow? Are you going to fuck a cow? Are you going to do something with a cow? Are you a monster? Are you a freak? Are you some kind of monster? What are you done? What are you? What are you done? What are you? What are you done? Are you alone? 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 Call us. My Life in Comedy Excerpts from the Memoirs of Winston Egbert New York was a paradise for a young man with ambition in the 1920s. If you traveled in the right circles, it could be a non-stop party. Of course, I more often tended to circle around the right circles, always off in the periphery. I'd pick up some freelance writing work from whatever paper Robert Benchley had been fired from recently, but generally I'd have to scrape by with whatever I could get. One of the things I once got was a few shifts as a waiter at the Algonquin Hotel, where I served the vicious circle itself, the members of the fabled Algonquin Round Table. Their normal waiter, Luigi, had claimed to be hit by a bus again, and they needed someone willing to work for the kinds of tips you get out of a pack of drunk, sarcastic journalists and drama critics. Their wit was legendary and they practiced their barbs and bon mots until they were sharpened to a razor's edge before pulling them out at the table to be transmitted to a national audience through the popular magazine and newspaper columns they all happened to write. They were loud, often were drunk well before arriving for lunch, and generally only tipped in unsolicited fashion advice and insults regarding racial heritage. I was privileged to see a few famous exchanges in my time there, during the brief moments when the round table members would sober up enough to remember their witticisms. I remember one time Alexander Wolcott brought in a copy of his newly published book to show his friends. 
Oh, what can be more rare than a Woolcott first edition, exclaimed the proud author. To which columnist Franklin P. Adams responded, A Woolcott second edition. Woolcott, knowing he had been bested with a superlative witticism, bore it with dignity. Square in his jaw, he looked Adams right in the eyes. Fuck you, he said. Round Table was also famous for their practical jokes. This often led to some awkwardness and confusion among the group. I remember one instant where Benchley pulled me aside and asked me to replace all of Dorothy Parker's cutlery with tumblers of gin. Suspecting some lark, I inquired as to what was the purpose, to which Benchley replied, Because if that loopy lush doesn't take the edge off with a quart of good stuff right away, she'll slit her wrists open like holiday wrapping paper. Lord help me, I love and respect that woman, but she will paint the walls red with her own blood if the mood strikes her, so chop-chop with the feel-good sauce and no more back-talk. Parker, of course, had more than her share of witty exchanges. I remember once I saw her entering a hotel around the same time as a younger lady drama critic was also heading for the same door. The younger critic held open the door for Parker, exclaiming, Age before beauty. Pearls before swine, replied Parker as she passed through the door. She then let out the foulest broccoli fart I had ever before or since encountered. It smelled like a corpse rotting in the South Carolina sun and haunted all who felt it for days afterwards. Parker kept walking as if nothing had happened, confident in her victory. Fatherly advice. You should always stick by your buddies. Fight alongside them through all their troubles. Unless their troubles involve being devoured by a pack of flesh-eating goblins. Then just get the hell out of there, because that shit is just fucked up. If you end up as anything other than the same drunk piece of shit your father is, he will consider you a failure. Sometimes that's just the price of respect. A man who would hit a woman ain't no sort of a man. He's more like some kind of wombat-goat hybrid. That shit's wrong. Women like men with confidence. They also like a man who can do a damn sit-up without blacking out and who has a bank account that doesn't laugh at him every time he checks his balance. If your ambitions end with coming up with a fifth way to get blitzed out of your skull on Smirnoff ice in a funnel, all the confidence in the world ain't gonna help you. You've got that rubber tire belly and a part-time job at Sbarro. What the fuck you gotta be confident about anyway? Real men eat steak. You don't eat steak? Some kind of a fake man. Like a golem or something. Pussy-ass golem. 
should always treat women with respect. They won't treat you with respect, but you gotta be better than that. I don't, I don't fucking know why. Your mom will hit me if you don't, probably. All soda is candy. So hell no, you don't get a bottle of candy to drink with your dinner. That's why this country's so goddamn fat, because every time someone feels parched, their first thought is to guzzle down a half pint of dessert topping. It's water, milk, or scotch, and I don't care if you're five years old, those are your options. Just because someone is different doesn't mean you can't trust them. Unless they're one of those flesh-eating goblins, in which case run that shit over with your car and get the fuck out of there before his buddies show up. You don't want to be around for that shit. What the hell are you drinking, boy? Soy milk? There's no such thing as soy milk. Soy got fucking titties? That's fucking bean juice. Don't go telling me lies or I'll whoop you one. Don't trust anyone who looks down on you for drinking good beer instead of Coors or Bud or some shit. That piss is brewed with crab grass and cow farts. You drink that shit, it means you're either too poor to buy better or too dumb to know better. If it's the former, it doesn't mean you gotta like it to pretend it's God's own nectar just cause you gotta get buzzed on the cheap. And if it's the latter, fuck you. That's like saying the half pound of chuck I ground myself and cooked up on my grill is no better than a fucking Mickey D's cheeseburger. That's a special kind of stupid ought to be shipped off to a reservation or something. They say the most frightening thing is a life wasted. But a shark with octopus tentacles is pretty fucked up. Actually, you know what's scarier? A zombie tentacle shark that shoots flesh-eating goblins from its mouth. I think I just shit myself. Most of the fun of having kids is all the bullshit you get to pass off as real. Only half of what your parents tell you is on the level, and part of growing up is figuring out which half. You want to know if I'm lying about all that goblin shit? What did I tell you would happen if you ever questioned me about goblins? That's right, goblins will eat your tongue out is what'll happen. Drugs are for people who are too dumb to afford an imagination. Doesn't mean they aren't a good time. But don't put too much into them. I know there are all those stories, people coming up with world-changing ideas while on drugs, but you ever notice all the people in those stories are all fucking scientists and doctors and shit? Guy at the record store didn't drop ass, didn't come up with a double helix, it was a fucking scientist. You want a surefire way to find out the ten dumbest ideas you'll ever hear in your life? Ask a pizza delivery guy for all the great ideas he had while wasted. Drugs make you think different, they don't make you think better. You cure fucking cancer, you can take all the acid you want. I ain't giving you a beer until you can show me you can sustain a rational thought for more than a minute and a half. Don't judge people by their jobs. That shit's shallow. You can hate telemarketing, but screaming at the poor fuck who has to do it for a living is small. No one does that because they want to. It's like screaming at the people at the Donner Party for turning cannibal when they were starving to death in the snow. Easy to be on a high horse when you ain't been there. What do you mean, what's the difference between cannibals and flesh-eating goblins? Do flesh-eating goblins eat other flesh-eating goblins? Fuck no, they don't. So they're not fucking cannibals, are they? Don't start becoming a wise-ass on me now. Everyone's a fucking idiot about most things. No exceptions, especially you, because you're five, you don't know shit.
My Life in Comedy Excerpts from the Memoirs of Winston Egbert In the 1930s, while the rest of the world was groaning under the Great Depression, Hollywood was awash in luxury. The film industry had reached its zenith, a state of pure Babylonian excess. I was there, toiling away in the outskirts as usual, working as a gag writer for Paramount and as a waiter for a catering service that handled a lot of the big Hollywood parties. I saw all the big stars. I beat Judy Garland in a drinking contest. She was maybe 12 at the time. I don't think I would have stood a chance when she was at her prime a few years later. I once had a girlfriend who cheated on me with Errol Flynn. One time I had to find a way to clean three square feet of John Wayne's whiskey vomit out of a waiter's uniform. It was a wild time. Of the countless parties I attended in my capacity as waitstaff, None compared to the ones thrown by W.C. Fields. His drinking was legendary, and he wanted everyone to join in. Anyone who was anyone wanted to partake of the great comedian's largesse. My job was to keep the hooch flowing and make sure the skid row floozies Fields dug up didn't become violently ill on anyone more important than a contract player. I remember one time I was taking a break outside while the crowd inside was engaged in a rowdy game of let's see how many chorus girls we can fit under this table. I was sharing a smoke with a couple of the cooks, just shooting the shit, when we heard a noise in the bushes around the house. Suddenly, as if from nowhere and puffing on a cigar like a steam locomotive, duck walking at a furious clip, came Groucho Marx himself. He was in his full getup, grease paint mustache, glasses, rumpled suit. He rushed up to us and tossed a small burlap sack into the arms of one of the cooks. He then, with crack shot comic timing, shoved cigars in all of our mouths, reached into the bag, pulled out a human head, and screamed, It's a boy! He then rushed inside, still holding the bloody cranium by the hair, joining the teeming mob of drunken revelers. We were all, uh... A little rattled by the experience, to say the least, and were working hard to convince ourselves that what we had seen was a prop. I started to light the cigar when the older of the two cooks, more wise in these matters, stopped me and took it from my mouth, tearing it open to show me what was inside. I'll be damned if it wasn't stuffed to the brim with peyote. Twenty Small Towns The first small town you pass is empty. The stores, the houses, the restaurants, the roads, the people, all empty. The second small town you pass is having a parade. Each float is an image from your life. The parade ends much sooner than you expected. The third small town you pass only exists at night. In daytime, there is no town. Just voices 
At night, there is a town. But they never speak. The fourth small town you pass has just one resident. Many homes, many businesses, but only one man. There just happens to be hundreds of him. The fifth small town has many animals. Dogs and cats and goats and sheep and cows and snakes. No people, though. You don't ask any questions. They just stare at you. The sixth small town you enter is sunny, clean, well-managed. The populace is nice and friendly. And they are all bleeding from their eyes constantly. The seventh small town you enter is very small. It's getting smaller all the time. You try to run, but you are getting smaller as well. The eighth small town you enter fears one child who wields power over life and death. Violators of the law are carved into Spongebob shapes. The ninth small town you enter is about to have a witch burning. The sun is shining. Children are playing. Fires lit. The people could not be nicer. The tenth small town you enter has replaced light with shadow and shadow with light. It glows in darkness and turns black in the day. The eleventh small town you enter is made up of small shrines. People live in them and worship in them. There's one with your name on it. The twelfth small town you pass is populated by people with no eyes. They seem to be getting by without any trouble. Very happy people. Keep driving. The thirteenth small town you pass is very small. Everything is miniature. Even the people. You wonder who built it. Then you look behind you. The fourteenth small town you pass is lush and beautiful. It is growing right out of the ground. Its roots run deep and feed on something. The fifteenth small town you pass is not a town. You pass it again to be sure. There are people places, but it isn't a town. How do you leave? The sixteenth small town you pass is full of nothing, lived in by nobody, and located nowhere. There's an Arby's, but 
they're out of horsey sauce. The seventeenth small town you pass is haunted by people who do not know that they are dead. This is not unique. The eighteenth small town you pass is falling to pieces, being eaten away by the ravages of time. Also by giant spiders, those are eating it as well. The nineteenth small town you pass is pyramids. People pay with pyramids to buy more pyramids. They are starving. Not that the pyramids care. The twentieth small town you pass is sinking slowly into the earth and is surrounded by flaming pits. They stare at you, angry for the intrusion, until you leave. And now, a word from our sponsors. Do you want to see the world? See the world stripped bare. See it as it truly is. Naked. Trembling. Oh. You, you just want to fly somewhere. Well, we can help you with that. There are many places to fly to. There are many cities with different sorts of people in them and different food. You can do that if that's what you really want. Let us know if you change your mind, though about stripping the earth to its essence and making it stare us in the eye. Its very soul quaking before us. My Life in Comedy, excerpts from the memoirs of Winston Egbert. By the 1950s, the real story in comedy was television, and for a short time, the ruling king was Sid Caesar and his show of shows. I was there, doing odd jobs around the set and occasionally contributing gags. I think I had a nice little zinger about French accents that almost made it on the air. Anyway, it was a crazy spectacle to be around. The performers were top-notch, and the whole thing had the feeling of a high-wire act during an earthquake. It felt like anything could happen. Tensions ran hot. The writers were pressed like grapes in a vice for as many jokes as they could cram into an episode, and sometimes they would just never stop quipping for fear of losing their edge. Caesar would berate them for more and more funny till all they could write were sketches about really hilarious suicides each one ending with a wah-wah comedy trombone noise. At one point, I was working as an ashtray for the performers, keeping their cigarettes lit between sketches. 
I'd be sitting there just off stage, puffing on three or four king-sized Chesterfields, handing them back to the actors whenever they had a free moment. Let's just say my Q-zone was cool, fresh, and riddled with malignant tumors. It was while doing this that I lucked into one of those make-or-break moments where you can really step in and be a part of the show. One night, Caesar and Imogene Coca, who normally work great together, were at each other's throats all through rehearsal, and they hadn't worked through it by airtime. It was one of those episodes that felt like it was always on the verge of disaster. The pinnacle of this crisis came when the show went in for its third commercial, just before there had been a sketch about a couple at a nightclub. I don't remember the punchline due to my brain starting to black out from lack of oxygen as I worked to keep a full pack of Virginia Slims lit for the chorus girls. But when Caesar and Coca came off stage, they were fuming. Caesar said Coca had stepped on his lines, and Coca said Caesar had been rushing. Never found out who had been right, as in a fit of anger, Caesar threw a half-pint bottle of gin at one of the stagehands had stashed nearby at Coca's head and cracked her skull open. That wouldn't have been so bad, excepting that she was standing over a flight of stairs at the time, which she uh, proceeded to descend with uh, some force. Um, just then, we were told it was 30 seconds, and we were back on. Without missing a beat or showing the slightest concern for the uh, colleague he had just potentially murdered, Caesar scanned the room, pointed at me, and said, That guy looks like Imogene. And I was stripped and made up for her next part in a flash. Fortunately, I had watched rehearsals closely and knew all the parts inside and out. The non-stop barrage of cigarettes over the preceding weeks, rather than making my voice deeper, had constricted my vocal cords and given me a higher-pitched voice pretty close to Imogene's cadence. It was a little rough at first, but we got through the rest of the show. I tried not to think too much about what had happened to the original Imogene and never saw what they did with the body. From then on, everyone just referred to me as Imogene. Even people who had to know for certain I wasn't her. So from then on, I was uh, Imogene Coca. I stayed with Caesar until show shows ended and then struck out on my own. You know most of the story from then on, I'm sure. Assorted Thoughts Villains in games are always full of treasure, like coins and special powers. So I guess the lesson is murder makes you rich and strong. Send me nude photographs, so that I may see your feeble, unarmored flesh and determine your primary weaknesses and report them to my masters. Who am I? A fair question. The answer is that I am words spoken into a microphone on a digital file. Funny how the most obvious answers are often the most elusive. Totally normal and sane that as a society we spend ages refining thinner, sharper, and more delicate blades for scraping along our skin. Pumpkin Spice Revenge Plot Pumpkin Spice Hostage Situation Pumpkin Spice Death Count Pumpkin Spice Conqueror Worm 
pumpkin spice blood stains. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Weebles see, but they do not forgive. Weebles bleed, but they do not die. In the back of every Pizza Hut is a hideous golem of uncooked dough, cheese, and grease that defends the store from blood serpents. Ideas for a mixtape. Rustling in the leaves that is not the wind. A car battery dying. A scream cut off with sudden sickening thud. No witnesses. Fall essentials. Skin. Eyes. Three or more. Hat. Sharpened. Three kinds of medical monstrosity that call him ye master. Head tentacles. Thank you for listening to episode six of the Post Culture Podcast. When Dago Boogaloo. As usual, our opening theme was produced by The Fourth Shift, as is the closing theme you're listening to now, which you can purchase off their new EP, available at fourthshift.bandcamp.com. You can also follow them at Twitter at fourth underscore shift. You can follow us at Twitter at postcultrev, that's P-O-S-T-C-U-L-T-R-E-V. Digital copies of the Post Culture Review are also available on Etsy. Music heard during this episode included jazz collections by Bix Beidebeck, Harry Null, and the Paul Whitman Orchestra, as well as a selection from the Alan Lomax Collection. Once again, I would like to thank you for listening to the podcast. I would like to thank you for simply being, for being here, for taking up space, for giving our existence a witness. We hope that we can do the same for you. <laughs>